would be laughable if this wasn't so dangerous. You start doing ballots like this. Rudy Giuliani on Fox Sunday spinning his latest false conspiracy theory about an American voting machine company, a bizarre take involving George Soros, votes being counted in Spain, and dead strongman Hugo Chavez. A company that has close, close ties with Venezuela and therefore China. False. Truth, facts, they don't seem to matter to Giuliani, who's tweeting, posting on YouTube, showing up on far right-wing shows, spouting wildly false allegations, even from the parking lot of a landscaping company next to an adult bookstore. Wow, what a beautiful day. His argument in Philadelphia, that vote counters were purposely hiding ballots from Trump's poll watchers. Because many, many of them were fraudulent. Not true. This is the man President Trump has just put in charge of his legal challenges to Joe Biden's presidential win. A stack of lawsuits has already been thrown out or dropped, including nine in one day. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. If there was any doubt that President Trump's refusal to concede the election was anything more than a shameless cash grab, Trump personal attorney and human gargoyle Rudy Giuliani has put that question to rest through revelations of his own strong-arm tactics in demanding $20,000 a day from the Trump campaign to take charge of the president's hopeless post-election legal fight. No matter he hasn't argued before a federal judge in 28 years, his membership to the D.C. bar is administratively suspended for non-payment of fees, and he reportedly wants $20,000 a day for his services. That guy was arguing for the president before a federal judge today, unspooling fakakta conspiracy theories worthy of a Newsmax interview. If Rudy isn't charged in commanding that kind of dough, it should tell you something about how serious Trump is about winning these legal battles. He's not. But this has already been well established. Nobody's taking any of this seriously, with the exception of millions of MAGA cultists who literally believe anything that comes out of the president's mouth. To talk about this as a viable legal strategy or discuss it under such terms is patently absurd. I'm now only interested in the sham legal battle in terms of the underlying fraud and criminality it reveals about Trump and his henchmen. Trump's playbook is remarkably consistent here. Trump University may have crashed and burned under a cloud of wrongdoing and litigation, but the intent here is the same. They exist as a vehicle in which to separate suckers from their hard-earned cash. Business bad? Fuck you, pay me. In the days that followed the election, as Trump cried fraud on Twitter, his lawyers were blanketing Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia with a series of lawsuits aimed at stopping the court or invalidating the results. All of these actions gave Trump's MAGA faithful a sense that he was the rightful winner and would fight to overturn the results. The lawsuits themselves have very little legal standing and have been roundly laughed out of court. His lawyers have admitted under oath that there was no fraud. The ballots they seek to overturn are minuscule as they relate to the overall count. He is quite simply using the moment to raise vast sums of money for his dubious election defense fund. We have since learned that this fund is basically a sham and is instead being funneled into an entirely new Save America pack, which will all likelihood set the stage for his ultimate goal, the creation of Trump TV. Because we're fixing to overturn the results of the election in multiple states, and 
President Trump won by not just hundreds of thousands of votes, but by millions of votes that were shifted by this software that was designed expressly for that purpose. Rudy enters into the equation here for several reasons. First of which, he's a fucking moron and Trump's very own useful idiot, willing to debase himself to no end and take on any and all fights, no matter how morally or legally indefensible. Secondly, no one else would take the case. Trump's first choice, the equally moronic and partisan chump Dave Bossy, is sick with COVID and likely counting his blessings that he's been forced out by sickness. Even the big-ticket Republican law firms that represented Trump through his impeachment, like Jones Day and Porter Wright, have walked away, leaving millions on the table in fees. What the hell is supposed to do, you moron? Ben Ginsburg, the bare-knuckled Republican super lawyer and architect of George W. Bush's Florida recount strategy in the 2000 election, has gone a veritable speaking tour to broadcast his disgust. What, what would you say to him? Sir, you need to take a step back, look at the results. It is a democracy, it is a country that's been very good to you, and you need to respect the institutions, and the greatest institution of all is our elections that lead to the peaceful transfer of power. And you cannot be destructive of that. Everybody knows what's happening here, and most are walking away. Except, of course, for fucking Rudy. He can't. He's already far too compromised and destroyed to do anything other than stick with Trump until the bitter end and go down with the Viking death ship. The man is a human car wreck, an imbecile of historic proportions, and a mean streak equal to his vengeful boss. The term Rudy Special was created as a catch-all for the near-constant shit show that surrounds his every doing. Uh, do, you, do you regret... Uh, do you think I'm an idiot you regret, I'm print false material? Do you regret your interaction in the Borat movie? Now that's a stupid question, isn't it? No, it's that's not really stupid, stupid at all. I, I have Just a fifteen-year-old daughter. I the, watched that, and I was I was kind of grossed out by it. I'm I'm giving you a chance to explain. Why well, was I, I? I called the police when I realized that it was a scam. I called the police, and he ran away because uh, the minute the minute she said something compromising, I called the police. Whether you believe it or not, I was tucking my shirt in. But he is loyal to Donald Trump, and ultimately, that's all that matters. Everything about the man is just fucking odd. His bug-out eyes and demented thousand-yard stare, his unhinged TV appearances and general air of creepiness make him Trump's perfect foil. He is the hunchback Igor in Dr. Frankenstein, willing to do literally anything that the mad doctor asks. Dr. Frankenstein. Trapped inside the lunatic's bunker, exhausted and disgusted and worn out, the Trump team is reportedly on the verge of chaos as infighting pits staffer against staffer in a death match for their political lives. Over the weekend, Giuliani and his own team of lawyers attempted what was described to ABC News as an internal campaign coup, an attempt to wrestle power away from the current long-standing Trump campaign leadership by claiming the president had given them full control moving forward. Campaign manager Bill Sepian and Jason Miller and their respective teams have been sidelined. Reports of screaming matches and near fistfights are coming from the West Wing as it appears the lunatics have taken control over the asylum. The ascension of Giuliani means that the president will have no counterbalancing influence left in the campaign to talk him back from doing truly terrible things. 
He's really going out with a bang. All aboard the crazy fucking train. All aboard! <laughs> the rest of the Trump news cycle remains trapped in a post-election fraud vice grip. Until he concedes, which he won't, or the Biden transition begins through force or some other extra-legal manner, we're all stuck in this weird political limbo, trapped in a netherworld of Trump lies and the fabricated reality of right-wing media. CNN is reporting that for the 10th time since the election, Trump has no scheduled events on his calendar. This means he's literally doing nothing except for playing golf and pacing about the West Wing, eating fucking McDonald's and tweeting lies. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. There was a theory advanced by me and copied by scores of reporters that the president would decamp from Mar-a-Lago on Thanksgiving and simply never return, sparing himself the shame of being looked upon as a loser and sparing us from his dangerous dictates. Unfortunately, on Tuesday, Stephanie Grisham, the chief of staff for the First Lady, tweeted that Melania Trump and the president will celebrate Thanksgiving at the White House. The fact that he is staying is meaningful, but not for the reasons you believe. Trump isn't suddenly interested in governing after four years, nor is he worried about the optics of traveling during a pandemic surge. Don't be ridiculous. He doesn't give a shit. The man is up to something. While we're all snoring from Triptonian-induced food comas and watching the Clint Eastwood Marathon on TNT, Trump might bomb Iran or something far worse when he's left alone without adult supervision. We're in for a dangerous couple of weeks here, folks. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The longer Trump forestalls the transition, the more harm he is causing to us as a nation. Again, He's not going to overturn the election results, but his little temper tantrum could have serious national security implications and could cause the death of untold thousands going into this latest COVID death wave. The reports are grim. Nearly a quarter of American hospitals are running out of workers. After shattering another record for daily infections, tonight more Americans than ever are hospitalized with COVID. Estimates are that another 200,000 people could die in the next wave unless there are things that are turned around and that requires Trump to govern, or at least to acknowledge the seriousness of the situation. Joe Biden's newly minted chief of staff, Ron Klain, has acknowledged the basic frustration of having to wait until January 20th, when the country seems paralyzed in crisis as Trump refuses to govern, refuses frankly do anything but watch the country die because he lost the election. Look, he's not the president now. There's not that much that Joe Biden can do right now to change things other than to reiterate kind of the message you heard from Dr. Osterholm which is that all Americans and our state and local governments need to step up right now. If the, if the president, the administration is not going to lead, that's where the leadership has to come from. That will change on January 20th. But right now we have a crisis. It's getting worse. It does give us an opportunity, though, to watch cowardly Republican senators fall over themselves to avoid upsetting Donald Trump. Now that he has all but announced his candidacy for 2024, Trump has frozen the field for those seeking the seat in a post-Trump universe. But now, after four years of eating shit from Donald Trump and worse, the sole reason they supported the man, after all manner of insults and slights, Trump has yanked away the football and said nope. But still, 
These Senate saps remain enthralled, which suggests something far more insidious. Does Trump have a compromise file on all of them? If so, whatever is in Lindsey Graham's file must be the worst of all. This is a man who, if he were a relative, Uncle Lindsey, I wouldn't let read to my kids at night. He's the senatorial equivalent of a man in a windowless van parked next to a playground, offering us all little pieces of candy. Stay away. Stay the fuck away. Let me give you a little bit of a scenario of what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old. I am thrice divorced. And I live in a van down by the river. And he has been beyond relentless in his pursuit of bogus fraud allegations and seems imperceptible to his own conscious or moral compass. I mean, how does he do it? He pressured the Republican, Georgia Secretary of State, to throw out legal ballots in hopes of overturning the result. We all have shame for the things we did for Donald Trump while under his spell. But Graham is going above and beyond the call of duty now. Not sure where this ends for him, though, and it worries me. And now for the main event. Since establishing that the president's election fraud claims are nothing more than a sleight of hand to misdirect the public from his own egregious acts of financial fraud, I'm less interested in the mechanics of these lawsuits than I am with the larger issue of what a delayed transition means to the overall security of this nation, as well as how we manage the coming COVID onslaught. Beyond that, I'm still struggling with how 70 million people voted for Donald Trump despite knowing all they did about him and decided that they wanted him even more. And now, after casting their vote, 88% of this group, some 61 million people, despite having no evidence whatsoever, believe that Trump won the election. Donald Trump has been planting the seeds for a contested election for at least six months. He has mounted a disinformation campaign based on the repetition of a set of lies around mail-in voting and has planted a narrative of massive voter fraud in the minds of millions of people. This is a sad state of affairs that we are being manipulated not by a foreign enemy, but by our own sitting president. After years warning of cyber attacks from abroad, it seems that the enemy is within. Instead of Russia, China, or Iran, President Trump is the one doing the real damage. Uh, Trump will have the distinction of doing more than any person in the history of this country in undermining American democracy. While Trump has long traffic in the language of conspiracy, inventing scores of scenarios that seem pulled from the mind of a paranoid lunatic, he is no doubt also influenced by the fringe voices that make up his information diet. Naturally, paranoid to begin with, these stories of deep state actors fighting to dislodge Trump from office who answered to George Soros or the fucking Wu-Tang Clan, it doesn't matter. They all serve the same purpose and have become part of a steady drip, drip, drip of misinformation propagated and spread by the president himself. A recent study found that all the bad actors and purveyors of fake news, Trump was himself the single biggest super spreader of COVID misinformation. All of it backs up his own demented worldview, which is essentially that life is nasty, 
brutish and short, and you better get yours while you can, or someone will take it from you. Ain't gonna be no rematch. Ain't gonna be no rematch. Don't want one. Understanding how Trump weaponizes that information and primes his audience to receive the tsunami of bullshit that passes them on daily basis is also key in understanding how Trump was able to fool so many voters a second time. To help me sort out these complex questions, I reached out to John Seifer, who for 28 years served in the CIA's clandestine service, mainly in the former Soviet Union ultimately becoming the agency's chief of station in Europe. We're not talking about an analyst behind the desk in Langley. Rather, Cypher was the real deal, a recipient of the agency's Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, a clandestine instructor for future spies and all-around badass. Nowadays, Cypher is a foreign policy, intelligence, and national security expert. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and Atlantic and appears regularly on CNN, NPR, MSNBC, and the BBC. He serves as a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, the Steady State, and the Council on American Security. He is also an expert in information warfare and disinformation and spoke to us about Trump's use of these techniques to further his own agenda. So let's listen now to that conversation. So, John, let's just jump straight into all of the questions that all the listeners right now are interested in hearing. On Thursday, you tweeted that today, I, along with over 100 senior military, national security and public officials, sent a letter urging the GSA administrator to allow President-elect Biden access to transition services. This is an urgent, urgent national security matter. Please explain for those that don't understand why this is so urgent and what the follow-up causes of this could be should this nonsense continue. Well, first I want to point out that, you know, these people, you know, these military generals, admirals, people from the intelligence services, commenting politically and, and having a public stand is not something that they do or they're comfortable with. You know, in a normal election, these people would be quiet and they would stay in the sidelines. They see themselves as professionals. They work for the country. They work for national security. They don't work for one party or the other. But the fact that they're willing to speak up, thousands of these people, there's the national security leaders for Biden, there's the steady state, there's Lincoln Project, a number of these different groups that are that are um, out there that are talking about the danger to our country. And so I think, Michael, you know, clearly the problem here is, you know, there's a big difference between politics and governing. And if, if everything is about politics and, and vengeance against your political enemies, then you're not governing. You're not dealing with the national security of the United States, the economy of the United States, all these things that need to be done. And so what's happening now with President Trump not you know, dealing with the obvious and continuing with this sort of lies and fake truth and trying to spin this story to his supporters who don't know any better is they're doing long-term damage to the United States. There's countries around the world that expect the United States to be a serious partner, to work with them on everything from terrorism to, to economic issues to health issues. And when they look at the United States right now, they, they, it's embarrassing. They look at us and they see a, a country that's not serious. And they see a president that they just cannot deal with professionally because he's all focused on just you know vengeance against his personal enemies. And so I do think it's a real danger where we're in right now. I think it's going to underpin and under, under under hurt our long-term 
you know, economy. And I also think he's creating sort of this law, this, this group of people who are going to believe they were lied to and stabbed in the back that, that, that a future despot could use, uh, you know, to, to, to try to gain power. And so, you know, after World War I, there was this myth that the Germans only lost because they were stabbed in the back by the Jews back home. And essentially, President Trump is doing the same thing. He's creating this fiction that, that, the, that the election was stolen from him and that, you know, people undermined him and stubbed him in the back. And there's a lot of Americans who believe this stuff. And I don't know how we're going to come together and work on common problems if, if you actually believe that you've been stabbed in the back and that the elections were, were fraudulent. Well, this is the danger of Donald Trump, because everybody should see very clearly right now what it is that he's doing. This is nothing but a money grab. I saw, I talked about it on my past podcast. I've talked about it with Ari Melber on MSNBC. I've talked about it to journalists. This is nothing more than a money grab. All he wants to do is figure out how many of these 100 million social media followers that he has are really true loyalists to him. What, is it 35%? Is it 40%? Is it 50%? Whatever it is, it's a big number. And at $4.99 a month for Trump media, it's a lot of money. It's more money than Trump has ever made in his entire life. So the notion that this great deal maker, this mega billionaire is out there thinking about you or me or this country, he is not. Donald Trump knows how to think about one person and one person only, himself. And when they ask somebody like Donald Trump, who are your three best friends? The only thing he could ever say is me, myself, and I, because that's all he cares about. You know, as part of the urgency for receiving critical intelligence briefings and allowing the transition to begin as soon as possible, you cited how the 9-11 Commission report said the delayed transition in the year 2000 hampered the new administration. Explain to my listeners how all of this is connected. Well, the world is a complex place. And these administrations, you know, we, we in the public tend to focus on the president and what the president says and these, these sort of things that show up on our, our TV screen. But there's, you know, the United States is dealing with incredibly important and complex issues across the globe from terrorism to, you know, nuclear proliferation to all of these kind of things. And when a new president comes in, they have to bring a lot of competent people in with them to learn what are the issues and, and, and deal with them. And this is part of the problem after 9-11 is the delay in choosing the president so that when Bush came in, didn't give some of his experts the time to come up to speed on some of the threats. And one of these threats obviously was Al-Qaeda terrorism, which you know, shortly thereafter, Al-Qaeda terrorists were able to use against us because we, you could arguably weren't ready because we hadn't done the hard work and prepared ourselves to be ready. Think about right now, think about how inward focused we are right now. Can you imagine if the Chinese decide to use this time to do something with Taiwan or, or to take over the, the China Straits? We are not prepared to deal with that. And the next administration is not going to have the background and expertise to deal with it because we're so focused on this horse crap with pretending like the president won the election when he didn't. And Michael, I think one of the things that, that you've done and we can talk about more that, that I, I tend to agree with is really important to think about this president is, is sort of in organized crime terms and mafia terms. You know, his mentality is one of, you know, 
of bad players working together, disordered use of compromise against each other. And so I think that's something we need to focus on. You know, I think you're right. I think he's looking to make money in the future and he's, he's not thinking about the health of the United States. Well, first of all, I said this again a thousand times on this show as well as um, in when I stood before the House Oversight Committee. At the end of the day, the entire campaign was nothing more than the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. And these aren't my words. These are words that came straight out of Donald Trump's mouth. This was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of U.S. politics. And what he's doing is he's figuring out now that his brand is completely tarnished. I don't know how he's going to build another building. Who the hell would buy in it? Who would <laughs> want to live in it? And in what country? Right. So instead, he has to figure out how he's going to make his next buck. And then I want to turn for a second about the Trump transition debacle. What's interesting is people don't know this. I had gone and I had taken from Anthony Scaramucci the Mitt Romney transition book. It was a nice embossed red um, document that had all 1,500 plus positions that an incoming president needs to fill. I don't believe Trump ever filled more than 150 of these specific um, jobs. And then look to see the number of people that he ended shit canning. And at the end of the day, most of the people that are there in their positions are not people that were appointed. They were just people that rose up because they were next in line and generally from the Obama administration. What do you, what do you know about that? You know, I would suggest to your listeners a great book by Michael Lewis, the guy who did uh, Blindside and um, uh, Moneyball and a number of these things, wrote a lot about, uh, about Wall Street as well. Michael Lewis wrote a book called The Fifth Risk about the, about the uh, Trump uh, transition. And as you know, uh, by law, there's a whole bunch of things that kick in when presidents transition. And Chris Christie was in charge of it for President Trump, you know, when he won the election against Hillary Clinton. And they had done that process of trying putting together books, talking to people, trying to do this professional thing. And, and reportedly, President Trump essentially just threw it all away. And so when they came into power, they're totally unprepared in terms of what people needed to fill what jobs. They had no idea what some of these institutions did. You know, the Department of Energy controls our nuclear weapons supply. And we had, they essentially had these bozos in there who had no idea even, you know, what, what that meant and what that did. And that book, The Fifth Risk, talks about the dangers and downsides of not taking those, those things seriously. And so I think we're, we're risking that again. I think that one thing we have going for us is the Biden people have been in power before. He's got lots of real experts from all of these different places that can fill these jobs rather than just being able to put someone who's personally loyal to the president. Well, Look actually, this guy. that's the one thing. Yeah. But that is the one thing that, he, that Trump never had. He never had a chief of staff who knew him, who understood yeah, him, and who was loyal to him. And that was the very first mistake that was going on because each and every person that worked for Trump looked at Trump as a complete asshole, like a complete <laughs> moron sitting that they could end up shaping, that he was malleable to their needs, wishes, and wants for their own power grab. 
starting with rancid penis and working their way all the way down to now <laughs> current Mark Meadows. They all believe that they can mold him into what they want. But here's the problem. They don't care about him to the same extent he doesn't care about them. And that's why you have a completely dysfunctional government that was never capable of doing what they needed to do. But I do want to bring your attention to in October, it was actually October 20th in an article for the New York Times, you wrote in regards to while a traitor or mole inside our spy agencies can do tremendous damage, only a deeply partisan intelligence leader can undermine the very system of trust that underpins our intelligence establishment. Discuss with me for a moment the way that Donald Trump has undermined that very system and the specific role that John Radcliffe has played in making that possible. Yeah, so I, I, I would like your listeners to understand to, to the extent I worked almost 30 years in CIA. I worked with people around the world in sometimes dangerous places. And never once did any of us ever talk about politics. Never once did anybody know or care about what party somebody belonged to. I worked with people for years, no idea whether they were Republicans or Democrats. In fact, until I retired and sometimes would find out on Facebook or something what, what somebody is. So those people in those places in our intelligence community, in our law enforcement community and, and military community for that matter, they're all focused on their mission. They're all focused on the security of the United States. They are very uncomfortable when they're asked to play a partisan or political role. And so what's happened is, for example, with John Radcliffe, is he's clearly there not because he cares about the national security of the United States or the intelligence community. He has no experience whatsoever in any of those things. He was a small time town mayor in, in Texas, and he's a, you know, a partisan political sort of uh, politician. He's in that role because President Trump has sees his intelligence services as a place that he can mine information for personal political needs, domestic political needs. Not necessarily, he's not interested in them to do their job as just basic national security issues around the country. Again, it's about me, myself, and I, right? And so John Radcliffe, his job, as he sees it clearly, is to cherry pick or declassify or find information that will make the president happy, you know, and pass that on or or publish it so that it can be used by the president's partisans. And that's really dangerous. You know, there's millions of pages of information that come in each day into our intelligence community. Anybody can pull anything out at random and create false stories out of that kind of stuff. So if you have a president who's willing to take advantage and use our intelligence services that way, um, you know, it's a very, very dangerous game to play. And why do you think that he's doing that? What benefit do you think that Trump has at this point in time of doing that? That's a really good question. And you probably can answer it better from your experience with him. I think, first of all, there's, you know, right. He's still sore about the whole Russia, what he calls hoax. He's, he believes that it undercuts his historic election in 2016. So he's constantly been trying to find places to attack anyone that had information related to that. On one level, he clearly, uh, he clearly wants to undercut anyone who can hold him accountable. It's the same reason you attack the FBI. It's the same reason you put your own guy in Justice Department. It's the reason you attack the intelligence services because he's worried that those places could come up with information or could investigate him and find out that he's been lying or that what he's saying is not true. And so I think undercutting those, those institutions and keeping them off balance is just in his basic instinctual feral instinct of, of how to 
how to respond so that they can't be a danger to him. And then, of course, now I think there's a lot of this is just anger and vengeance against people. Like you said, he chose to put people in positions early on that people may have convinced him to do that weren't personally loyal to him. And, and he believes that, you know, that hurt him. And so he's taking vengeance against those people. Now, anybody who's sort of in the defense department or the intelligence services are doing jobs that are not personally benefiting him. He's going to uh, fire them and push them out for his own purposes. Yeah. I've said in other podcasts, Donald Trump is willing to burn down the country because he lost the election. You know, it's, it's amazing. He could be angry. It's the, it's the same logic as being angry at an airline because they lost your bag. And then on your next flight, you want the plane to crash. That's how stupid <laughs> that his thinking is. And it's just completely illogical. Yesterday, you retweeted a piece from Nicholas Kristof about the ongoing purge at the Pentagon and the shuffling of people into positions who seem to be truly nothing but yes men. And in it, Kristof quotes a retired admiral as saying, Trump has figuratively decapitated our operational civilian leadership in the Pentagon. Jubilant high fives are the order of the day in Beijing, in Moscow, Tehran, and Pyongyang. Explain to the listeners for a moment just what he's doing at the Pentagon and why it matters and what else is likely to come from it. You know, it's not 100% clear to me what he's trying to do at the, at the Pentagon. And you may have more of an instinct for this than I do. Is he just punishing people? Is he, is he angry that the military has been sort of slow rolling his efforts to pull troops out? Is this part of this effort to declassify information that benefits him? It's not 100% clear to me. But what is clear is he's putting people who are completely um, you know, non-professional into these jobs to try to, to do whatever it is he's trying to accomplish. So think about this. There's, there's you know, a thousand generals and admirals in the, in the, in the U.S. military almost. There's, there's millions of people who work in the Department of Defense. He asked a guy whose highest job title ever was Colonel, this guy Miller, to be in a, who may be a, a great soldier, a great guy, to run the Department of Defense. It's like, you know, in whatever industry your listener is in is taking someone who's sort of at best mid-level person and putting them in charge of something that they have no capability for. And what does that say to our military? What does it say to our thousands of professional military and our, and our senior generals and admirals when you take a mid-level, non-important person and say, this is your new boss? It, it tells you that the president who put them in power is not thinking about the health of the department. He's not thinking about health of the institutions, not thinking about the health of the United States. He's doing it for some personal reason. And I think that personal reason will become clear to us soon. Well, well, John, what does it say when the president tells his four-star generals that my gut knows more about the military <laughs> than they do simply because what, when he was 11 or 12, his parents put him at the New York Military Academy Right. I mean, there is no logic behind anything that Donald Trump does. He says things in order to create conspiracies because those conspiracies end up making the news and he cannot help it. His fragile ego requires that his name be on the front page of every newspaper every day, that his name appears on television 
on the news channels every single day. So he creates these conspiracy theories for really for the Donald J. Trump media show. That's all that it's about, as well as what he will ultimately try to create. But there's a there's a bigger danger here, and you know this well, is, you know, we I spent a lot of my career working on Russian intelligence issues. I served in Moscow. And, you know, a lot of people are sick of hearing about Russia, Russia, Russia. But, you know, frankly, his activities are almost like a convergence of interests with those of Donald, of, of Vladimir Putin. It's not, you know, let's forget the word collusion. It's more like convergence. They're doing exactly the same thing. They have the same interests at heart. So both Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump are interested in chaos. They're interested in clouding the truth. They both want to undercut and denigrate the FBI, the CIA, foreign policy elites, and our allies. They both peddle narratives that they know are untrue. They both want to flood the zone with doubt and confusion. We're at a point now where Trump speaks these conspiracy theories so often that the Russians don't even have to come up with them. They can just amplify what President Trump says, and they it benefits themselves. These It, it helps stoke these angry fringe groups in the United States, which, which hurts our country and therefore helps Russia. And so both Trump and Putin, they see propaganda as truth. Anything that supports their narrative is, is, is deemed truth. Anything that undercuts their narrative is called fake news. And so this is, like you mentioned, this is almost like a crony mafia-like system about loyalty to the boss and creating your own version of truth. It's kind of, you know, the fact that the Russians and Donald Trump are doing it is something we have to keep in mind. Well, in the Washington Post, Tim Weiner writes that the Pentagon putsch is less about score settling and perhaps something even darker, that the president is seeking vindication on this so-called Russia hoax, as you just mentioned, and believes that the documents exist to prove it with the vaults of national intelligence. And Weiner writes that President Trump has been in the grip of a delusion for four years. He thinks the U.S. intelligence community constitutes a deep state conspiring against him, that a dark cabal created the Russia hoax in an attempt to overthrow him. It possesses an immense treasure trove of top secret records that will prove his case and that he imagines an arsenal of smoking guns secreted inside the Pentagon, the FBI, the CIA, and the National Security Agency. He wants them stacked on his desk. How crazy is this notion, is this theory that Trump lives in and that he creates and stokes on a daily basis? A lot of it goes back to his just complete misunderstanding of, of, of the country and how, the, how we're governed and how our institutions work. You know, I worked for 30 years in CIA. Never, ever, we're not interested in, in domestic political politics. We're not interested in what, you know, someone running for president does. You know, he has this view that somehow John Brennan and the CIA was involved in this big effort to sort of overthrow him. I think he's created this thing and now it's sort of grown in his head. Um, and he has this view that, you know, the government and the, and the sort of what he calls a deep state, you know, are meant to work for individual presidents. And so he almost thinks that when a new president comes in, it, it should, the whole state should change. But these people are public servants. They serve, you know, every president, you know, running an aircraft carrier, running our nuclear, mili nuclear weapons program. These are not things that you can just come in every 
four years as a new president and take over and start doing. You need professionals who are involved in, you know, following the Constitution, the national security of the United States, not someone who is, you know, has been sort of just working at Donald Trump's side for four years and now come in and now you're in charge of stuff that you just have no, no means of dealing with. So I think what he's done, is he had this view of what he called a deep state. And then he went about trying to create his own version of that, of trying to put people in place, you know, to, to cherry pick and take things out that, that benefit him personally, the stuff you're talking about right now. But it, but it's a, it's fake. It's not there. Like those people who he believes have this information have been working against him have not been doing so. They don't have this kind of stuff. He's the president of the United States. He can ask anybody at the FBI or CIA to brief him on anything they have and they will do it. That's why these military guys, yes, they're frustrated by him, but they work for the president of the United States. They will do what he says as long as it's not insane and not against the Constitution and not against the law. So, you know, he continues to push this stuff for his own people to support these fake stories like these people are working against him when, in fact, they work for him. If he wants to know what is what is out there in terms of, of you know, Russia stuff, he just needs to ask for the briefing. He'll get whatever he wants. But he well, doesn't care. He doesn't sure, care about my reality. Right, but John, my understanding is that he's supposed to be taking these briefings on a daily basis. And actually, from those briefings, you're supposed to, Donald, take notes. You're supposed to then <laughs> be interested in what these briefings by our national intelligence agencies are providing you so that you could help to keep America safe from the Russia hoax, from the China virus, and from all other sorts of from all other countries that are looking to do harm to the people that you're supposed to be serving. But, you know, talking about the Russia hoax for a second, that's one of the reasons why I ended up in prison. It's really what started the whole thing on me. And being that you are a member of this intelligence community, before the end of this episode, I do want to talk to you about the Russia hoax. I want to talk to you about the Steele dossier, the dissemination to our FBI, to James Comey, whether it was through John McCain or others, on how this unverified, not reliable document that is baseless, how it ended up becoming this big giant investigation that ultimately led to my file after it was proven by the FBI. I have never been to Prague. I've never been to Russia. <laughs> I was never to Germany. I was never to Czechoslovakia. I was just never there. And how my file, after proving to themselves that it's just the document is bullshit, that they then decide that they should take this file and then pass it down to the Southern District of New York and then to open up an investigation on a million three of taxes over five years, 260000 a year for someone who has never filed a late tax return, for somebody who has never requested an extension, for somebody who has never not paid taxes. You know, in the two years that Trump paid 1500 I paid $3 million in taxes, <laughs> right? And yet... And yet, for the first-time offender, I have 48 hours to plead guilty. So I want to come up really from the intelligence part when it comes to you. I want to understand how that document, because that's what my second book is about, how this document and other documents 
got into the hands of individuals and how they blew it up into something much more than what it was or what it should have been. But getting back to the topics, I want you to talk to me for a moment about Parler. That's that communications app, which all of the right-wing America seems to think will soon replace Facebook and allow them to spread their bullshit without censorship. Because there is some mystery to its origins and that of its founders. And a lot of people believe that it's a creation of the Russian intelligence community. So how did these useful idiots continue to be, you know, cannon fodder for the Russians? It's, it's a good question. I don't know. You know, I saw some reports about, about sort of the background of Parler, and it's not clear, you know, who's involved or where it is. But frankly, the Russians are very good at this stuff. They can they can get in and, you know, Facebook and Twitter, all these things, none of it's secure. If the Russians want to look at what you're doing, what all of us are doing on social media, they're able to do so. You know, but the bigger problem is this country, everyone's in a bubble. So they've, and the problem is President Trump and others have created this bubble with this years and years of lies that make people want to that get angry and they're into conspiracy and then they want to even make a stronger walls around their bubble. So parlor is just the next step in, you know, the sort of right wing crazy bubble. And so, yeah, I don't see how any of this stuff helps our country when everybody's got their own reality and everybody sort of, all they do is dig deeper and deeper into their own holes. So yeah, parlors is a problem, but you know, so is Facebook and Twitter and everything. We need to really come to terms with what that means for us. You know, you can remember the, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties, there was, you know, a few channels of news, um, you know, we weren't in our own sort of separate worlds, but, you know, once Rush Limbaugh was created, once Fox was created, and then eventually social media, we've got different realities in this world. And we're, we're not talking to each other with the same basic facts where we've, we've got our own sort of world of facts that we're, we're going with. And I like to think that, you know, my, the stuff I look at has more facts to it than some of this crazy stuff that, that Trump is making up. But until we figure out how to deal with this problem, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be bad going forward. Well, I remember in 2016 at the election um, night, I remember there were two television sets in the room, one directly next to the other. One was set to CNN and the other was set to Fox. And watching these two election night replays, you would think that you were living in bizarro land. It wasn't <laughs> that it was not the same election. And it was that it was not the same candidates and it wasn't even the same country. And my biggest fear is the fact that Facebook and Google and all of these um, these apps are too big to fail. We need these Internet companies to exist. The first thing you jump onto when you log on to your onto your handheld or to your computer is you're checking your Facebook account or your Instagram account. Or you're going on to Google. And they have not invested anywhere near enough money in order to ensure the safety of the platform that we all use. We ultimately found out that Facebook, as an example, data mines your your um your data. And that they sell your data, which is probably the biggest part of their net income stream. And that's not right because nobody agreed to have geo-tracking 
placed on you so that they know as soon as you walk into a store, whether it's a Walmart or a Target or into any store, they're geo-tracking you. They could put up a geo-fence around you and start sending you Instagram or text messages. Hey, you can now buy this for 30% off over the next 30 minutes. I mean, I'm not so sure that everybody has waived their privacy rights so that these companies could continue to pay the same 50 or 100 people billions of dollars of profit and not take that money and put it back into, into their platform in order to make people safe and secure. I mean, this is your world. Fill me in. What am I missing? <laughs> no, you're not missing anything because these platforms aren't created to be news platforms are created to make money and they're created for entertainment's sake. And so the algorithms and things are just to give you more of what they, you think you already want. And, you know, people have used this. I mean, you guys, to the extent that Cambridge Analytica in 2016, you know, realized when others hadn't that Facebook had so much data in there that could be used to identify and actually create new voters. And so, Bannon and others work with face, with um, Cambridge Analytica to identify people who, you know, exhibited neuroticism, were interested in conspiracy, and then they would, you know, people who are prone to impulsive anger and conspiratorial thinking, they found these people and then were able to target them, introduce narratives through Facebook groups, ads, articles to sort of pump them and get them out and create vote. These are voters that never came out before, but... Cambridge Analytica through Facebook was able to find them, stoke them, get them angrier and angrier and angrier and have them come out. Essentially, they created, you know, the alt-right, you know, that created this kind of thing. And, and that's one thing that that the, the Trump campaign showed could be really effective. They didn't have to go back and just try to appeal to the same old voters. They could actually pull out and find new voters who were, who were into all this crazy stuff. Sure, but let's not forget when... They put Mark Zuckerberg up before Congress to testify. Let's not forget that Donald Trump has now demanded that TikTok sell itself because it has connections to the Chinese government. And yet Parler, yep. this right-wing conspiratorial app, manages to just skate through. I'm Again, once again, I'm just lost at point. the sheer hypocrisy of Donald Trump and these sycophantic yes people that he's now surrounded himself with. But I do want you to talk to me again now about an article that you highlighted from Stand Up Republic, which discusses the role disinformation plays in the discourse of Donald Trump. And in it, it asks, in the downward spiral of Trump world, who is wagging who? The writer goes on to say, Lies and disinformation have tidal effects, and we need to understand that the president is being led by disinformation as much as he is driving it. So explain for a moment just what is being said here and how the president is as much a recipient of disinformation as a conduit and how this affects the free flow of information in general. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think... He's in this loop of disinformation, which he both amplifies as well as receives. And so you probably have a better sense of where does where does Donald Trump's information come from? A normal president who realizes the power of, of the U.S. government, 
who has these large institutions that work for him, the NSA and the CIA, the FBI and Defense Department and people who truly will do anything to, to provide the President of the United States information that the president needs. He doesn't seem to get his information through those things. He's, you know, we have this multi, multi, multi-billion dollar thing at his disposal, and that doesn't seem to be where he gets the information. Instead, he seems to get it from who knows, from online, from his buddies, from Rudy Giuliani, from, you know, and when it's not clear where that information comes from, it does allow bad actors to try to pollute and get information into that stream. And so if I was an intelligence, if I was a Russian or Chinese intelligence officer, it would be child's play to listen to his phone calls, to listen to all the people he talks to, to follow his Twitter and his social media, to understand his mindset, understand the kind of information he likes, and to pollute and put information into that stream. I would find people, I would find, you know, if he talks to Rudy Giuliani every day, I would make sure Rudy Giuliani keeps getting information that I get to him through various means that then get into the president's into the into the president's mindset and then he pumps out and so he's they've created this disinformation pipeline that the president believes is benefiting him personally but it's benefiting others too he may be doing it because he thinks he has to keep that chaos going he's going to make money off of this in the end but the russians chinese and whoever else are doing it for their own pur- their purposes and they're not necessarily the purposes of keeping the united states safe so i want you then to think about it this way We all know that Donald Trump is a conspiracy theorist, and he's extremely vocal, along with his sycophantic followers and baby Jared and dopey Don Jr. and Eric. So what's the likelihood that Russia, China, or Iran, or Turkey, with their sophisticated disinformation campaign platforms are targeting these individuals or drunken Rudy and providing them with additional disinformation to their Facebook accounts, their Instagrams on Google or whatnot, and somehow managing to get it into their pipeline because you're right. Donald Trump does not read. And folks, I want you to listen to me. I was with Trump. (laughs) more hours than any human being on the planet. And I can tell you, I have very rarely ever seen him pick up anything to read unless it was about him or about golf. Now, nine iron is going to bring him closer to the pin, is not going to save us from a nuclear holocaust or it's not going to save us from an economic debacle or a pandemic, right? So explain to me for a second how that process works because he's so freaking transparent. I mean, the guy's a fucking open book to anybody that wants to get disinformation to him. You get, you get drunken Rudy to whisper it into his ear, and then all of a sudden, Trump is talking about it from the White House, from the Resolute Desk, from the Rose Garden, and he's stoking this disinformation, and Russia and all of these other foreign actors have to be laughing at us. I mean, how stupid can it be that they put out an article that validates some crazy point that he talked about ad nauseum again and again and again, and now all of a sudden he's believing it because he's referencing it to an article that's completely inaccurate 
which goes back again to the steel.ca. So I think you have to realize the United States is the largest, richest, and, and most powerful country in the history of the world. And I don't think people realize just how important that is to every other country in the world. Every time this elephant of the United States rolls over, it crunches somebody else. And so they have to pay attention to what we're doing. So every intelligence agency, every foreign military, everybody cares about the United States. They care about what the president's thinking. They want to be aware. They want heads up on things and they want to influence to the extent they can. Everybody. And so it would be professional malpractice if the Chinese and Iranians and Russians and Israelis and everybody didn't find a way to both understand Donald Trump, meaning maybe steal information, listen to his phone calls, all those things, or try to influence Donald Trump or the people around him. And so Russia has, has a centuries-long practice of deception and subversion and disinformation and using these tricks of the trade to try to keep their enemies off balance and put false information into their into their way of thinking. This is something they're very good at. They've been did throughout the Cold War with creating fake stories about how the U.S. created the AIDS crisis and 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 all sorts of things. And so I so I guarantee you that this is something that there's large large groups in every intelligence agency around the world that are saying, okay, we understand. We watch President Trump's Twitter. We see his rage tweets. We see him on TV saying these things. It's clear that he's not getting his information from the professionals and the FBI and the CIA. He's getting his, his information from the people he's talking to on the phone or, or they're being brought into the White House. Let's figure out who they are. Let's figure out the kind of information that matters to them. Let's try to do what we can, both overt in terms of diplomacy, meeting them, providing information, trying to you know do deals. Look at you know Rudy Giuliani and Bolton and Louis Frehley's kind of guys they work and they make money off the Iranian MEK. This is a this is a group that you know an anti-regime Iranian group that that you know kills Iranians in Iran, and they're sort of a crazy sort of cult-like group that is largely in Albania now of all places. It used to be in Iraq, and they hire people like Rudy and they give them money and and probably more. It's kind of a crazy sort of cult thing with sex that's involved and stuff. So, so these places, they know how to how to lobby people. They know how to get put things in front of them that matter, money um, and information. So, like I said, it would be professional malpractice if these countries did not try to influence and put disinformation into Donald Trump's head because they know he'll just spit it out and it'll benefit them. Yeah. In an article from 538, they argue that Americans were primed to believe the current onslaught of disinformation regarding the election coming from the president. Explain to the listeners for a moment, as an intelligence professional, about the concept of priming and how it's done to a susceptible person or even a population and how Trump was then able to prime millions of people to receive the onslaught of voter fraud post-election info. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing, you know, it, it's sort of fun for, you know, those of us on the left or journalists to, to make fun of Donald Trump. And there's plenty to make fun of. He's obviously, you know, you have better knowledge of him than than anyone else. But the one thing he does very, very well is this issue of priming. He has been pushing the notion of a rigged election, of a false election. I think he believed he was going to lose in 2016. So he wanted to get the narrative out there that if he loses, it's rigged and all these type of things. And then he's been able to follow up with that for the four years he's been in power. He's tried to undercut institutions. He's tried to show that anything that goes against him 
you know, is, is illegal or these people should be arrested or they should be locked up or, you know, it, and he started months ago talking about, about mail-in ballots and there's going to be a big problem with these mail-in ballots. And if I lose, it means that, that the election was rigged. And, you know, most people in the country, they don't, they're not following these things day by day. They're not reading all these articles that you're citing. They're not paying attention to these issues. If they're watching Fox News or if they're just, you know, they, they think well of the president, they hear these things over and over and over, they start to believe them. You know, if the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the entire world, is saying that the system is rigged, that people are working against us, that people are stealing things, and you hear it over and over and over, when the time comes, it's not really hard to mobilize those people and spin them up to, to, to do your bidding. The thing that's most frustrating for many of us is there's these Republican politicians in the Senate and elsewhere who absolutely know better. They know 100% that the election was legit and that it wasn't stolen and it's not rigged, but they're playing along for whatever purpose. They're hoping to get these voters that President Trump found and stoked and created and got angry. They want them for their own votes in the future or something. But but by doing so, they're 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 doubling down on this danger of creating tribalism so that, you know, sort of a, there's a cultural civil war. The last thing we need is a real civil war. Yeah, agreed. But in an article for Just Security about Russian intelligence operations targeting American politics, you wrote, Putin never wanted to use Trump because he respects or loves the man. Putin wanted to use Trump because Trump causes chaos. How do you think this benefited Putin's larger objectives? And what do they do now that the man is no longer in office? Do they just start over and try now <laughs> to figure out the Biden weakness? Well, I think they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And I think a lot of the things that they were setting up in 2016 was to try to, to, you know, to create chaos and make it so it was harder for her to govern when the time came. If you recall, in 2012, when Putin ran again to be president, there was... Um, there were not not necessarily riots, but there was a lot of protesters on the street, and and Putin publicly blamed Hillary Clinton and the State Department for for pushing those people out. Of course, it's crazy they didn't do so. That was legitimate Russian citizens angry at, at their own system. But but Putin, you know, he looks to his West. He has a country, okay, so that he's been in charge for twenty years. The economy is not great. You know, it hasn't really, the promises he's made of making people rich and making Russia stronger haven't really come through. So like any leader, it's all about staying in power. And for him also, it's a corrupt, it's about making money and stealing money. So his goal is to stay in power. If you're not doing well economically, you have to come up with a straw man. You have to have somebody to blame. And so they have created the fact that, the, that any problem that happened in Russia is because of the United States. The United States is undermining us. The United States has spies in our midst. The United States is creating these problems in these countries around us. And so his foreign policy and public policy interest is keeping in power. And for him to keep in power, he needs to make sure that the United States is as weak as possible. The United States relationship to NATO and European countries that are on his Western border are as weak as possible. If he can make sure that that relationship between the United States and NATO and the United States and Europe is is weakened or, or or fraught, that's in his interest. So every day he's looking for ways to, to stoke weakness, to stoke chaos, to create disinformation, to tell his own people that, look, yes, Russia's not doing that great, but it's because the Americans are screwing with us. 
And frankly, look at the United States. They're, they're, they're kind of messed up, true. So he, in, he has this interest of creating chaos in the United States. And he doesn't support Trump because he likes Trump. Too, uh, that's part of the problem with the 2016 narrative. Oh, you know, they were supportive. They wanted Trump. They wanted Trump because Trump was the chaos candidate. They knew if Trump wins, the United States is weaker. It has nothing to do with loving Trump. It has to do with making the United States weak. Yeah, this is something I don't understand with Trump when he starts talking about um, it's a love affair. I mean, I've never heard another president, I've never heard another president of any country talk about a letter that they received from a dictator, <laughs> meaning Kim Jong-un. They were love letters. They were love letters. I, I didn't know that that Donald Trump is trading in Melania for Kim Jong-un. I mean, I truly just don't understand Everything with him is love letters. I, I, I don't understand this. I, I, I'm so lost when I try to understand what he's trying to relay here to the American people that because now we're buddy buddies, we hung out for four, six, eight hours, that he's going to stop with his nuclear testing. He's going to stop shooting missiles, which none of which he has done, you know, into the Korean space. The peninsula. I just don't understand what this man is thinking. But the one thing that I really want to talk to you about, and it's something that had me petrified and has me petrified when I knew I was going to have you on. It's one of the five things that I really do want to know. I would really like for you to discuss with me in ways in which Trump will continue to be a national security risk after he leaves office. Because... I understand that presidents, as a custom, continue to receive intelligence briefings after they leave office. And that notion that Trump is going to now be given intelligence briefings when he's out of the office, to me, is bewildering. What are some of the ways that Trump could abuse that power, knowing what you do about the man and the many ways that He's compromised financially. He's compromised intellectually. He's compromised morally. I mean, think about it. The man is as reckless as anybody has ever been that has sat in that White House. And he's trying to create relationships all over the world in order to recreate the now tarnished and destroyed Trump brand. So to give a man like that intelligence briefings so that he can go ahead and have a nonchalant conversation with Putin or with a dictator or a representative of one of those countries, right, while eating a burger at Mar-a-Lago, to me is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. you. You have a better sense of this than anybody. It's, um, we're probably going to have a president who's more interested in getting intelligence briefings after he's president than he did when he was president. Because we assume most presidents are interested in getting all of these briefings, not just intelligence, but you know, on healthcare and on you know, law enforcement, but on intelligence, because they're patriotic and they're trying to do what's best for the country so they can govern. Whereas it's clear that he's never cared about any of those things. It's all about you know, attacking his own personal enemies and for whatever personal benefit. But when he's out of power, it's clear that the one thing he's interested in is money. It's, you know, and so, if he he's probably going to want those briefings because he's going to look for ways to use them to leverage with leaders around the around the world, to, you know, 
either to swap and exchange things for for things that he wants or special you know business preferences all these type of stuff you're going you have a sense for that better than anyone else he he has that you know for lack of a better word that organized crime mentality where there's no real boundaries what only works is you know honor among thieves if i can work with you to get something done there's no there's nothing holding me back it's about it's about making money and and you know, I'll use what I need to get it done and you use what you need. And so, yeah, I really worry about, about that fact that, you know, he, he doesn't care about intelligence briefings because he cares about what's going to happen to Palestine or what's what's going to happen to Gorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. He cares about them so he can make a buck. Yeah, and it just started bringing back memories of him in Helsinki having a private conversation with Putin or Jared Kushner running to the Middle East to go have a secret meeting with Mohammed bin Salman that was completely unauthorized. You know, as we're winding down, I did want to uh, ask you, in a conversation that I recently had with Michael Steele, he said that what truly frightened him was that Trump had opened up a Pandora's box for the next Donald Trump, and that whoever came next would be smarter, would be slicker, and would be immensely more capable of the autocratic aims that Trump himself could not accomplish, but tried. Discuss with me for a moment this idea and how we fight against it, knowing what we do now, what we know now about how susceptible the American public is to this type of propaganda and disinformation, and that somebody who's more capable will just simply capitalize on what Donald Trump built. Well, if you remember after Nixon uh, was out of office, there was probably the largest congressional effort to rewrite laws to try to stop the things that you know that led to sort of Nixon's crimes. And I think what you're going to see now, of course, we have a split Senate and Congress, so it's going to be more difficult. When President Trump leaves, all of these norms, all of these things that nobody ever thought would be a problem, would, would a president would be interested in sort of breaking or or, or going through, the Congress is going to try to write laws to deal with all these things. And so there's always been this back and forth between the power of the president and the power of the legislative branches. After Trump leaves, there's going to be this swing back to power of the legislative group. And they're going to try to write laws to, to try to deal with all the, these problems that, that frankly never came up until President Trump was here. Um, so there's going to be that. There's going to be efforts to try to stop those things. But I agree with you. The bigger concern is people have seen what someone that doesn't have any blinders, who doesn't care about, frankly, the country can do if they're willing to 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 do the things that President Trump did to break to break laws, to break norms. Um, I think the one thing that saved us is is Trump really just doesn't didn't know anything about his own government, and he was lazy, so he didn't get do some of the real dangers that we worried about. You know, he spent too much time golfing and going on Twitter. And you're right. Someone who is, who learns from this, learns from President Trump and uses these techniques, but maybe is a little bit more savvy and a little bit more nasty can, can, can do that, these kind of things. So it's going to be this race between the Congress trying to write laws to stop these things and another would-be autocrat trying to come in. So one of the things we have to get, you mentioned it earlier to get understand and deal with is, is social media and the power of social media. So right now, the ability of one person to weaponize 
social media for them, themselves is really, really powerful and to spread lies. So we as a country, not just Senate or whatever, has to come to terms with that and figure that out. So the next person doesn't come in and have that weapon at their disposal. You know, the big problem is Trump, the one thing Trump really does understand is social media. He understands television and media as a whole and how to play it. You know, for example, think about what he did with prison reform. He did absolutely nothing. <laughs> he signed an executive order, which is what he did each and every time. And I'm not so sure that Congress can pass a law that would prevent a president from doing an executive order, which is an enormous power. And it should be treated by the president as an enormous power. And it should be respected by the president as an enormous power given to him by us, by we, the people. He doesn't right. see it that way. So he looks at the media as an opportunity for him to take something. Because any time that there's something, Donald Trump has to be benefiting from it. And that's really the biggest problem. So what does he do? Prison reform is a total debacle. It's the biggest bullshit lie, or one of them, that Donald Trump spewed. And how did he end up getting some recognition on it? He paraded Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, two people that have even more followers than he, in order to come to the White House. And they released an individual, and good for her, you know, Alice, and I'm, and I'm happy for her, and, you know, God bless, and I hope that the rest of her life is filled with joy and happiness. But there's still millions of other individuals that are awaiting something that was supposed to be given to them pursuant to the First Step Act. But Trump knew that it didn't matter what he was talking about. If you can get these social influencers on your side, then he could create the disinformation campaign and make it stick. Because as you said, when you say it over and over and over again, Donald Trump didn't create that. That was created really by Stalin and then, you know, and then um, used by Hitler and by other, you know, dictators and crazy people throughout history. That's right. I mean, he's a marketing genius. I mean, he's, he's, he's great at taking credit for things. He's great at spinning them and finding a way to, to benefit himself and make himself look good. But as you know, in prison reform, if you actually asked him to explain it and sit down and explain the ins and outs of something that he claims he did, he can't do that. He doesn't, he knows how to spin it. So he looks good. He doesn't have any idea what's the content of these things. It's, it's about making him look good. He doesn't, you think he really cares about prison reform? He cares about getting credit for prison reform doesn't care really what it means. Yes, but only the credit so long as that it would have helped him in the re-election because his belief oh, yeah. is that the vast majority of prisoners are black, are black. or Hispanic, yeah. right? And that he could now attract a minority community with his bullshit, right? With, with his Sharpie pen and a piece of paper that you're right, <laughs> he has no clue about it at all. He couldn't tell you the section of the First Step Act. He couldn't tell you when it was supposed to be implemented. He couldn't probably even tell you that Michael Carvajal is the head of the BOP. He couldn't tell you who. But if he can get Kim Kardashian and Kanye West to build up this, this media campaign, 
that's free, right? Because it's done on the internet and it could benefit him, then he's all for it. You know, so John, as we, as we now sort of wrap up the hour, I do want to go back to what I told you I was going to bring up, which was the Steele dossier, the Good. Christopher Steele dossier, because mm-hmm. I have yet to find somebody who can actually explain to me what was this document really about, right? You have a document that is supposed to be opposition research. First, it was about Clinton, and then somehow it became about Trump, and then it somehow managed to get its way into John McCain's hands and then into Comey's and and so on. Now, I always say this, and I say this respectfully, we have the greatest intelligence community in the entire world. I don't believe anybody even comes close to America. And when they determined that that document was bullshit, worthless, garbage, that Christopher Steele is a fool for writing this document, how did this thing become this massive Goliath, (laughs) which ultimately had me incarcerated? Well, let me put it in, you know, simply in one sense, who created the Steele dossier and made it as important as he is? Donald Trump made it as important as he is, because in June 2016, when this thing was first being written, Donald Trump was on television saying, I have nothing to do with Russia. I have no business there. None of the people who work for me have anything to do with Russia. This is all fake. It's all lies. But at the same time, um, Mr. Steele is writing that there's these connections between the Trump family, long connections with Trump and Russia, all these kind of things. And so what happens by the time this gets into the food chain of the FBI and others, they now realize that that narrative that Trump actually does have things going on in Russia, that the president's been lying and, and Putin knows he's been lying, makes the Steele dossier look like it's more legitimate than it is. So if you have the most you know, important person running for president, lying about something. And then you have this document that at the time looks like it's more accurate. It gave it much more credence than it probably would have. The one thing I would disagree with, not disagree with you, but say, you know, as an intelligence collector, our job overseas is to find sources, talk to people, and then report back what they say, their information says. And we call that raw intelligence. So I have a source, I meet the source, I ask a series of questions, I put that down and I send that in. And I do that with a variety of different sources. And essentially, that's what, what Steele did. And so it's not that the dossier in itself is either true or not true. It's whether which sources of there have access or, or information that might be of interest. So if the FBI gets a document like that, by no means do they assume it's true. By no means do they say it's all either good or it's all either bad. What they do is they try to figure out which one of those sources might be relevant, might be telling the truth or not telling the truth. And then they would they would cherry pick and try to, if something looks like it's real and worth exploring, they'll explore. If it's not, they, they're busy. They don't have time to waste on bullshit. So they'll, they'll, push, they'll push that aside. So, so I think the Steele dossier got much more traction than it should have because it became public and it got all kinds of people spun up on it. And the president used it to attack, to attack. So it became a much bigger thing that it needed to. The FBI probably would you know, professionally would have looked at it. They would have said, huh, you know, let's, let's look and figure out which of these things are worth exploration and which not, and then tossed it. I mean, so, so it became a lot bigger than it needed to become because the president lied about it. If the president had said, yes, I have 
business interests. I'm interested in making this tower in Moscow. Yes, Mr. Manafort has contacts with the Russians. Yes, but these are all, you know, please explore them. You know, let's look into them. But essentially, you had two narratives. You had one narrative say we have nothing to do with Russia, and the other narrative said you did, and that did was closer to truth. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, everything Donald Trump turns to shit. Well, John, <laughs> let me let me say thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, we'll offline. We'll talk more about this because I'm trying to figure out again how this document then continued despite the fact that they knew that all the 11 allegations against me were all inaccurate and why they kept investigating when all 11 were determined by themselves, by the by the FBI, to be lies. I mean, I've never been to Russia. I've never been to Prague. I never paid compromise. I don't have a, a dacha in Sochi directly next door to Putin. <laughs> no members of my family are real estate developers in Russia, in Moscow. I mean, the whole thing is just one lie about me, but yet they kept the investigation open. So I, again, I want to thank you for your insight. Um, I mean, we're living in very dangerous and very troubled times. And I'm certain that when Biden comes in with his administration, that his transition team will not look like Donald Trump's. <laughs> That's for sure. And it'll certainly be filled by the 1,500 or so people and not by 150. So, John, I really want to thank you for your time today and for your insight. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And, Michael, thanks for what you're doing. I think you're giving us a better insight into the mentality of the president because of your experience and your knowledge and what you've suffered for it than, than anyone else. So thank you. You be well. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. It's ironic that in order to examine the president's use of disinformation, lies, and propaganda to rally his deluded electoral base, I had to reach out to someone in the CIA. For as much as what Trump does is ridiculous and laughable, and the stories he highlights, creates, and forwards are just as stupid, he is nonetheless shaping the minds of millions of Americans who have created for themselves a right-wing eco-chamber that feeds them a steady diet of news and opinion and adheres to their specific worldview. That it happens to also hew closely to how Vladimir Putin operates in relation to this country and his own desire to sow chaos through division is illuminating, if not alarming. Donald Trump has a troublesome history of aligning himself with strongmen and dictators. For him, it is how he views himself and believes that the country should operate. In these final days of his presidency, he is trying to reenact the time-honored tradition of election theft by claiming massive voter fraud and has crossed the line from dictator enthusiast into something resembling a failed strongman. The saving grace here is Trump's unique incompetence. In the end, we were saved by the fact that Trump and his merry band of morons punched themselves out in the 10th round. Let's hope he stays on the canvas. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch. And it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.
So is this the line for Dragon's Maze? This is gonna be awesome! Wow, the line is really long. Mommy, we'll meet up later. How long will you wait? As long as it takes. So you guys are only gonna do this one ride all day? It won't be that long, probably. Mom, can you get us food? But wait, are they cutting? Caleb, food is so far away. Should I say something? Daddy, pick me up. Mom! Hey, there's a line here. Daddy, swing me. That's like 20 people. Oh one person holds the line for 20 people? This is bullshit. Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.